Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California for Monday, May 16th, 2016. This week, we learned that in an election in which we've heard nonstop that a candidate's authenticity is key to connecting with voters, Donald Trump once faked being his own PR flag. <laughs> so he set the tone for the week. Thanks for joining us today here in San Francisco. I'm John Zipperer, your host for Week to Week. And I am also the Vice President of Media and Editorial here at the Commonwealth Club. On today's program, we're going to, of course, talk about the latest presidential news from both parties, um, and possibly a third party, uh, as well as some uh, state and local election news, Facebook's partisan topics, and other political news. So, as always, I note that the Commonwealth Club is a place for people of a very wide range of views, unlike Facebook. And so any opinions that are expressed are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. So let's meet our panelists for today. I do need to note, you, some of you probably saw we were going to have Melissa Kane here. Well, she had a death in the family and could not be here. So our thoughts are with her. We look forward to her being back here on our panel in the future. But. We're pleased to have our two panelists today. On the end, I'm going to introduce Mark Baraback. He's back with us. He's a political writer with the Los Angeles Times. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Z. Baraback. And in the middle is Bill Whalen, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and his Twitter handle is Hoover Whalen. So there are, there are uh, uh, question cards spread throughout the room. You, I think most of you know how we do it here. Write down your question. Uh, we'll have someone pick it up, and, and I will try to answer or ask as many as possible. So let's move on to our roundtable. We're going to, of course, talk about both parties, but let's start with the Republicans. Since we last met here, Donald Trump has locked up the nomination. His two remaining challengers dropped out. So I'm going to start with Bill. Uh, what do you make of the way the GOP is coming to terms with this? Um, so there is a phrase that clinical psychologists use called DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. Does anybody know what D-A-B-D-A stands for? It means handling grief, denial, anger, <laughs> bargaining, <laughs> depression, acceptance. And I would contend for most Republicans, since about 60% of Republicans are those who had a chance to vote against, uh, vote in the Republican primaries and caucuses, vote against Trump. Uh, those 60% are somewhere in the uh, neighborhood of, of uh, I would suspect, depression and acceptance. And the question is, how long depressed and how quickly to accept? Uh, some Republicans uh, have come around to Trump, some quicker than others, not surprisingly those looking for a job in Washington, perhaps in 2017. Others like Paul Ryan, uh, John Kasich, who I was listening to on CNN earlier today, they're holding out. And the question is, what are they holding out for? And I suspect what they're holding out for is a wink and a nod from Trump. The wink and the nod being that 
What you're getting now, you won't get when I'm president. You, Paul Ryan, are very serious about entitlement reform. Well, as president, I'll do entitlement reform. Wink, nod. John Kasich, despite what I've said about the wall and about wanting to deport people, that won't happen. I actually care about people too. Wink, nod. And so it goes. The question is this. The question is this. When you look at the last election, Mitt Romney lost for a lot of reasons, a lot of self-imposed wounds. The 47% comment, the self-deport comment, uh, strapping the dog to the roof of the car was probably not a, not a good move in <laughs> retrospect. But he also lost because of a basic exercise in mathematics, 38, 32, and 30. 30% 30 of the vote in 2012 was independents, 32% was Republicans, 38% was Democrats. Romney actually got more independent votes than Obama did, but Romney got 93% of the Republican vote while Barack Obama got 93% of the 38%. So he won the presidency. So if you're Trump, you have to hope in addition to doing as well among independents, you have to have less votes by the Democrats and an equal or larger amount of votes by Republicans to narrow the field and at the same time do as well as Romney. So while Trump talks about not necessarily caring about unity, not needing Republican votes, the reality is he needs them. So this is a long-winded way of saying the dance continues and will continue way until Cleveland. To keep you on the hot seat, you uh, on this stage called Donald Trump vile. Ooh. This was a few months ago. Um, what stage of uh, grief are you through? Uh, <laughs> uh, boy, uh, I'm definitely in the uh, depression area. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get to acceptance. Uh, true story, actually, I've been invited to speak at a conference in Mexico in mid-October, and I am actually thinking about a one-way ticket. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, there is this actually, this ties on a serious issue for Republicans. How are you going to cast a vote in November for this guy? You have to make these calculations. Can I live with Hillary Clinton for four to eight years? If I can't, then I have to cast a vote for Donald Trump because we're not going to get a third party candidate. If we do, he or she will not be a serious third party candidate, could win the presidency. Do I vote then for Donald Trump knowing to stop Hillary Clinton? Can I sleep at night knowing I voted for Donald Trump? Do I just look down the ballot and just find some nitwit at the bottom of the ballot and vote for them? Do I write on Mike Barback or John Zipper? What do I do exactly? And I just contend to this hour, there are a lot of Republicans who are struggling with this, with this issue. So Mark, you have been out on the campaign trail reporting for many months now. Um, what can you tell us uh, about the mood among Republicans? Are, I mean. We're talking about Republicans who are in you know, the depression, uh, anger area. There must be quite a few who are excited. I mean, this is upending the, the cart. Right, and cart. if I could just sort of nip this in the bud here, if there's anyone besides Bill thinking of writing me and as president, if elected, I will not serve. If not, okay, I just <laughs> I, I want to make that very clear and that now. Well, I think as, as Bill suggests, it's funny, I, I just did a story yesterday, uh, it, well, it ran yesterday, uh, talking to Republicans in some battleground states. And eventually we're going to get around certainly to the map and talking about the map in the Electoral College. And you all are sophisticated enough to understand how these things work. And what was striking to me is I talked to a lot of Republicans in battleground states. And you're right, I was out on the trail. I'm happy to talk about you know, my experience. I talked to a lot of Trump voters, went to some Trump rallies. Obviously, a very different sentiment than I, than I got from a lot of activists and, and people in a lot of these key states. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The polls don't suggest that, you know, it's going to be a struggle. It's, it's a very narrow pathway that, uh, you know, barring some hugely extraordinary reversal in fortunes. And I'll be the first to tell you that, that, that this year has been extraordinary. And it has just thrown everything we thought we knew about politics out the window and defied all the expectations of all the wise people and all the pundits. That said... 
looking at things as we look at them today in terms of the map, in terms of polls, in terms of anecdotal stuff, in terms of these folks I've spoken to, I think he has a very difficult road to get to the 270 he needs. And, and again, I, I talk to folks in places like Ohio and Florida, Colorado, Virginia, states that he needs to win. And there is a lot of resistance, not from Democrats, but these are from uh, uh, partisans, activists, important people. There's a fellow, I don't know if any of you ever heard of Art Pope in North Carolina. He's uh, hugely, uh, probably the single most important Republican donor, strategist person in, in, in North Carolina, which is at the uh, top of the list of swing states. And he said he's not going to uh, support Trump. He said, you know, he won't lift a finger to help him. He's going to focus on down ballot races. So Trump faces a, a lot of problems, separate and aside from those of his own making. Well, I guess the result of his own making, but he, he, he faces a lot of problems when you, when you start breaking down and getting into the math and, and the states he needs to win the White House. Now, I know we have actually one of the leaders of the uh, young Republicans in the state in our audience today. I want to ask you two, um, in the Democratic race, we, of course, talk about a, an age differential. You know, Hillary Clinton doing better with older Democrats. Bernie Sanders better with younger Democrats. Is there a difference in, among Republicans, or is it regional or class-based? I mean, there, where does the split between the folks who are, you know, there with a bottle of something really strong to drink and those who are out thinking, yes, finally, we've got change? He's referring to my Twitter photo the other day where I put my California ballot up next to a big bottle of bourbon, trying to decide which, <laughs> which, which prompted two responses, either, either why waste your time on the ballot or why, why destroy a good bottle of bourbon. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting, you look at the Bernie-Hillary race, and I think we'd agree that the divisions tend to be age, largely. Largely, Bernie does well under 30, and she does well over about, what, 45 or so? Is that her cutoff? Yeah. Uh, I would say Republicans, um, the two things to look for would be, and they're not necessarily unrelated, would be education and income. And if you look at the Trump support, it's actually very similar to what's going on in Great Britain now with the Brexit, the idea of Great Britain leaving the EU. And if you look at the people who support the exit, they're upset like Trump supporters about immigration, and they tend to be less educated. They're concerned about losing their jobs. You look at Trump supporters, they tend to have less education, uh, whereas anti-Trump voters in Republican circles tend to be college-educated. So I'd say, say those are the splits. Actually, interesting you brought up the Brexit, the, the UK example, because one of the notes I had on here was Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, the former mayor of uh, London, who is a populist Tory. Right. I, I guess we can describe him that way. Um, and I think if you look uh, in some other, especially particularly Eastern European states, you, you see other populist conservatives who have uh, gotten to power. Is that a wave, that, uh, I guess an international wave, that there will be more Donald Trumps? And, and because again, folks who are not winning in the economy, who uh, you know, are maybe adhering to conservative social values and such, um, do you think they're... Donald Trump's not a one-off, that he's part of a, a wider movement that we're seeing. Well, I'll ask you both of you. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend to be any sort of international political expert. I do what I can to understand American politics. But, you know, we, we've seen the same sort of aggrievement. Uh, I think we're seeing huge changes. Uh, I mean, we're undergoing in this country and, and elsewhere around the world, you know, this fundamental transformation, all owing to uh, the Internet, technology, this, this sort of revolution, a lot of people being displaced, a lot of uncertainty. And, and you know, I, I want to take an opportunity here. You know, it's, it's very easy to 
you know, laugh at Donald Trump for whatever reasons you laugh at him, his hair, his tan, his this, his that, but he is giving voice to a real sense of, of aggrievement out there, a real sense of anger, a real sense of, of, of disenchantment. Um, his, his people, the people who support him are, are not... Uh, they should be listened to, and I think they should be taken seriously. And I think whoever, Democrat or Republican, is elected is going to have to recognize that, that there is a re- very real uh, force out there. There's a re- very real anxiety. There's a lot of unsettlement. Uh, and and he's, he's speaking to that. I mean, it's not all just um, uh, reality TV and the flesh and, and all that. He is speaking to something that's out there. Right. Um, so uh, Bill Kristol, the, uh, the conservative commentator, a former uh, chief of staff to Dan Quayle and, and a conservative activist, uh, is in fact going to be at the Commonwealth Club in June. Uh, he is also leading or one of the leaders of an effort among some Republicans to draft a third party candidate to try to, well, do what, Bill? I mean, does, what is, do you know what their chance, their hope is? Well, that's actually a good question because when we talk about a third party run by somebody running against Trump, uh, there are different definitions to what a third party run constitutes. There is the idea of running a third party candidate and that candidate winning 270 electoral votes and becoming the next president. There is the idea of a, a third party candidate running and winning just enough states to deny Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump from getting to 270, at which point what happens to the election? Smart audience, it goes to the House. Or somebody who runs just selectively in a handful of states such as Colorado, Ohio, Wisconsin, not surprisingly, states where Republican senators are in deep trouble, and their purpose is to bump the conservative vote in those states to get Republicans who are turned off by Trump to get turned on about the election and come out and vote and try to save the Republicans in those states. The problem is, despite these many definitions, there's no horse that we can see right now. The Washington Post wrote a piece about this the other day. They voted, uh, they floated various names. Uh, General James Mattis, who's a, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, was among those mentioned. Uh, ben Stass, the senator from Nebraska, was mentioned. Mitt Romney was mentioned. Uh, there's just nobody who seems in the position to either, number one, run, want to do this, or B, really do much damage if they do it. So it's an interesting concept to throw a wonderful wrinkle into it. Um, but for this to really work, you'd have to find somebody willing to do it. And then in addition to having a third party candidate, you probably would need a fourth party candidate to pick off votes from the left on the Democratic side to really throw this thing into chaos. Well, and two, I would Mark? say it's really sort of a thankless job for whoever would do it, because I think uh, it's pretty safe to say that if there was a third party candidate, it would almost certainly ensure Hillary Clinton's victory. And if it did, whoever did it would, would be a pariah. And there goes their 2020 chances. I had a conversation in the course of reporting the swing state story. I was talking to the chairman of the of the uh, um, Iowa Republican Party, which, you know, Iowa's going to be pretty important in 2020, one way or the other. And, you know, he, I don't can't remember if he brought up Ben Sass, or I think he might have brought him up unbidden, Ben Sass being the senator from Nebraska who's sort of gone on this Facebook and Twitter uh, um, blitz talking about the need for a third-party candidate, or at least the need for someone who could speak to conservatives who are disaffected with Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but but Jeff Kaufman, the chairman, said to me, you know, if he said, you know, forget about never Trump. If he keeps going, it's going to be never it's going to be never Sass. So if you're looking at 2020, like Ben Sass might be, like John Kasich may be, um, you know, there's not a lot of percentage in being seen as the person who put Hillary, the, I should say, the Republican who put Hillary Clinton in the White House. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready 
We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Do you think the, uh, each of you, do you think the Republican Party will, to use the phrase we're hearing a lot, unite behind him, or is it going to be riven with a, a split through this whole election that could really harm them in November? I, I think the party will unify to an extent. I, I don't think, I mean, and that, that's the big problem. You know, uh, Bill started by talking about the math and, you know, uh, to win, he needs 90% of Republicans. And um, I, I think he's going to have to struggle to get there. I, I, you know, you have the rather extraordinary and, you know, we, we, we've seen so much uh, remarkable, unusual, crazy, surprising stuff happens that sometimes you really have to stop back and say, you know, wow, this really is a big deal. I mean, you know, the last two sitting Republican presidents basically saying, you know, they're not going to endorse Trump. They're not going to show up at the convention. Um, you know, the Speaker of the House who has yet to endorse the party's nominee. I mean, this is this is truly remarkable and, and unprecedented stuff. So um, I, I have, I, you know, I mean, I guess it depends how you define Unite. Is Unite, he's not getting 100% of the Republican vote. Well, you know, no candidate gets 100% of their party vote, but I think he's going to have a very, very hard time getting, getting to that 90%. I think there are a lot of people who, giving them their due for whatever reason, can't bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump and won't vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, the last I looked, he was at about 72, 73% of Republicans right now. And boy, another 20 points is a huge and heavy lift for him. I don't think he's gonna get there, which means he needs more independent votes and needs Hillary to underperform among Democrats. But I think in terms of Republican unity, I think those in the establishment like Paul Ryan, He'll come out and he'll say he supports him, and that'll be the end of the story, and he'll disappear into Wisconsin, go bow hunting or whatever he does in the summer and just kind of stay off the radar. The realistic thing to watch are the class of 2016 Republican senators out there, the half dozen or so who are in real big trouble. And the guy to keep your eye on in particular is John McCain, uh, who has issues uh, with Trump both philosophically but also personally because, remember, in these many, many, this litany of Trump insults. Watching Donald Trump through his campaign has been like watching a, a slow-speed car chase in Los Angeles, where there are one or two ways where the car chase ends. Either the car runs out of gas, or the, or the, uh, the CHP puts out the rumble strips that blow out the tires. Well, Trump has blown through every rumble strip that we think in terms of stopping him. And one of the first ones you might recall is when he mocked John McCain's POW experience yeah. and said, what I, I don't like people who surrender, or whatever it was, something like that. Yeah. So for McCain, this is deeply personal. And it's professional because he's been in the Senate for 30 years. He's running for one more term. He's age 80. And he's in trouble. He's about a 30% of the vote in Arizona is Hispanic. And the state could go Democratic and John McCain could be out of a job. So you look at the people in trouble in 2016 in November, they're going to each one have to make individual calls as to what they're going to do with Trump. I'll be glad to wager John McCain never endorses him. I don't think Ross Johnson up in Wisconsin will. Rob Portman is a very good and decent man in Ohio's 
in trouble because it's his state for the convention. He has to go. These other senators will blow it off, but he has no choice but to go to Cleveland. Uh, he may endorse Trump in some way, but I think the ones who are really in the most political trouble, they're just going to keep their distance from Well, Trump. and you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who today did this. I, I did a story about two weeks ago because I was fascinated by this formulation. And, and I presume some of you have heard this, this I'm supporting, but I'm not endorsing yeah. formulation, which, which was this remarkable thing. So I called some people who've been around politics for a long time, people like Ken Kachigian, who you know, and others, and say, have you ever heard anything like this? And, and, and no, no, one, no one seems to have. So today, you know, Kelly Ayotte, another one in New Hampshire, a, a senator, has done the uh, support but not endorse. And then today it was, it was Ron Johnson who, 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 who did that little, that little this is, dance. This that, is saying I smoked, but I didn't endorse. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. kind of a, this added to the, you know, the lexicon of, of, of political uh, uh, gymnastics. I want to get in some questions here from the audience. Actually, someone asked, uh, I got this card right while you were saying this, will Republican strategy now be to throw the presidential race into the House? Well, you, you answered that, but I just thought it was interesting that uh, you're on the same wavelength. Uh, someone else asks, is Trump going to have trouble raising money? Sheldon Adelson might not think so, but... Uh, is, well, is he going to have trouble raising money? I read somewhere that he needs to raise, he's talking about a billion dollars, which means $200 million a month between now and the election. I mean, that's a lot, a lot of right. money. Um, is he going to hit a billion? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. With Donald Trump, you never know what you can take at face value and what you can't. He claims he's worth many, many billions of dollars. He could presumably, you know, write a check for a billion dollars if he is to be believed. Um, I think he could have a, a hard time, a hard time getting to that billion dollar just on his own. He will. Um, there are two ways to take money in presidential campaigns. One is a donation to the Mark Z. Barabat campaign, which means you're limited by federal federal limits. But the other is to write a big, fat, sweaty check to a super PAC, which is what Mr. Adelson would do, for example. So you can write a million dollar, ten million dollar check if you want to. So Ed Rollins, the longtime GOP strategist consultant, is running the Trump super PAC. Let's see how much the super PAC gets. But Mark raises a key question. How much will Donald Trump self-fund in this campaign? He uh, has spent 40 million of his own dollars uh, so far in this election, which is remarkably cheap given how many votes he's received. Uh, we have thought, I suspected that he was going to do it in the form of a loan to the campaign and then raise money and take the money back uh, so he wouldn't have to spend any of his own. But he announced today, I think that he will actually, he will not do that route. Uh, I'm just not sure how wide he's willing to pry open his checkbook. I, I live down in Palo Alto and we were talking about this before we came on mm -hmm. stage that uh, to the extent that I've been around people of extreme wealth like this, not too many, but a few, uh, there are some who are very generous with their money and their own causes. Arnold Schwarzenegger was a good example. When he ran for governor, he really put his money where his mouth was, and if he supported an initiative, he'd back it. He'd go to the ballot box and fight that way with his own money. Uh, others like Donald Trump, I think, are kind of that class of people who I go out to lunch with them, and you notice as you're walking away from the table, they grab about 10 sweet and lows and put it in their pocket. And so they're, they're rather stingy, shall we say. So I'm not sure how much money Trump wants to spend on himself in this campaign. Well, and you know, if I can just interject, I, I have a few hobby horses, and one of them is money. I mean, money, if anything, as Bill suggests, you know, Donald Trump spent a relative pittance compared to Jeb Bush and what other people spent. I mean, you know, 
know, we're always fascinated with money and how much candidates raise, but, you know, it's like poker, you need a certain ante to get to the table, but, you know, he who raises the most money does not win. I, I think right. Donald Trump will have enough to run a, a, a viable campaign. Um, I don't think he necessarily needs to outraise Hillary Clinton. He just needs enough to be a viable candidate. I, I think he will have that much. So, you know, if he falls short of a billion, he's not going to lose because he didn't raise enough money. In my assessment. Okay. Someone asks, earlier in the primaries, some states saw a massive increase in voter turnout. Now that Trump is the presumptive nominee, what do you think California's turnout will be on June 7th? Care to uh, predict? I mean, how, how, we were thinking, and we were talking about this earlier, we were thinking that, you know, for once, California will matter in a presidential <laughs> primary. And, and, you know, on the same day, John Kasich and, right. and uh, Ted Cruz head for the hills. Um, so does that mean we, we're looking for another low level of, of uh, turnout? Oh, oh no, um, just the opposite. It'll be a very large turnout. Uh, first of all, 2014 was not just bad, it was like drought historically awful in terms of, uh, in terms of turnout, which is one reason why you have so many uh, ballot measures coming your way in November. It's very easy to qualify ballot measures in this environment. But no, you have a Republican race which has petered out. It's Charlie Brown and the football happened yet again. We got denied our great moment, but still you have Republicans who've signed up for this process. Uh, voting has already been underway since last week, so the people have already been voting. People like me have got their absentee ballots, so you see a large Republican representation, and you're gonna see a very large representation on the Democratic side where a majority of the registration is gone. There's still a race going on there, folks, and I suppose I see a lot of smiling faces because these tend to be Bernie crowds, right? Let's see a show of hands of the Bernie supporters here. No. They must all be at the basketball game. Congratulations, by the way. This is the one group of San Franciscans that don't care about the Warriors game, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but no, there's still, there's still a lot of interest and intrigue on the, on, the, on the Democratic side. He is not going out without a fight. And you know, you'll see that carried over on June the 7th. But it will not quite be, it will not be as grand as it could have yeah, been. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree. I think it's, good. it's not going to be as big as it would have been. But there is sort of, to use the Warriors, a bandwagon effect. There's a lot of people like me who I will confess who are casual basketball fans. So, hey, you know, the Warriors are in there. So I'm, I'm going to watch. I'm going to get caught up in it. You know, this is an election season, right? There's a campaign going on and people get caught up. And I think there's a lot of people, even if, they, even if it doesn't matter, there's still the notion that there's this election going on. Here's a chance to go vote and be a part of this. So I agree with Bill. I I think it's not going to be as big as it would have been, but I think it's going to be bigger. Than, I, I think yeah. it's going to be pretty and, decent. And on the Democratic side, just to close out, um, it is intriguing in this regard. In terms of the last time that California was really relevant to the Republican existence, uh, it mattered for Ronald Reagan in 1976. He needed the votes out here uh, to carry on to the convention that year. He won about two-thirds of the state here. Jerry Ford didn't, didn't compete. Reagan was just two years from being governor. He was a powerful force out here. Um, 64 is the last time the Republicans really slugged it out in this state in a primary. On the Democratic side, the last time the state was truly relevant was 1968 with the fabled Humphrey, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Gene McCarthy race. And you look at Bernie Sanders right now, and I think there's a question of McCarthyism in California, that Eugene, not Joseph McCarthy. Uh, <laughs> but the question about whether or not Bernie's gonna come out here and for a couple of weeks really try to drum up the youth vote and really try to, try to get young people involved for the first time in quite some time in California politics. So it could be, could be a pretty interesting couple of weeks out here. When someone does ask, does Bernie's continued campaigning help Trump, if so, from a democratic democratic perspective, if so, why doesn't he stop? 
Well, I, I think, yes, it, it does help to the extent that Hillary Clinton has to fight, you know, to use the cliche, sort of a two-front war. She can't pivot completely the general election because that would suggest that she's taking these Bernie supporters for granted, the people she wants to come around to her side. So, yes, to the extent she cannot focus completely and utterly on Donald Trump, uh, it, it does uh, uh, not help her. You know, why is he not getting out? I, I can't speak for him. I, I think the, the simplest uh uh, answer would be that every delegate he wins, every vote he gets makes his hands stronger going into Philadelphia and being able to press for a platform that reflects his views. And we can talk about how important the platform is or is not, but still it bolsters his case in Philadelphia. And two, um, he's running for president and we're talking about Bernie Sanders. Has anyone, when's the last time anyone heard anything about Martin O'Malley? <laughs> right? So as long as he's still in there, we're, we're talking about Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, now, in California, uh, lots of folks, I believe it's well over half, uh, vote ahead of time. A show of hands, whether you voted for Bernie or not, who has already voted? I have. For Bernie. <laughs> for Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> um, does, how does that play into, because what you get is a decreasing percentage of people, obviously, who are up for grabs, yeah. right. and of course, then we're talking about really the decreasing percentage of the people who are going to be voting for Democrats who are up for grads. How does that affect, perhaps, the different constituencies the candidates might be going after? Uh, students, for example. Students. Well, I can tell you from campaign, it drives campaign consultants crazy because before, before this voting by mail um, uh, rage kicked in, absentee voting, we now call it voting by mail, um, it was a very easy playbook for California politics. You'd wait until about the last 10 days of a campaign and uh, as I said, the movie Gladiator, you'd unleash hell. You would spend money. You would spend money in terms of television advertising. The campaigns would do it. Independent expenditures would do this to kill candidacies or kill initiatives, if you will. Because of early voting now, every major campaign in California quibbles the idea of how early do we spend money. Uh, so that's, that's one way to go about it. It puts a huge premium, obviously, on targeting likely voters earlier in the process. And not just targeting them in terms of their intensity of voting, but also getting Getting to them and informing them that you have this option for to vote this way if you want to, mm -hmm. keeping after them and making sure that you vote. Um, Bernie Sanders needs to do very well with the youth vote in California, as in most every other state that he runs in, to beat Hillary Clinton here. The primary is on June the 7th. Where will most college students be on June the 7th? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. 
Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Home, perhaps uh, UC students will be taking finals. Yeah, uh, on the beach some, somewhere. Some may be at the beach. Some may be in their beds, hungover. Some may be out of the state. Uh, so it's kind of hurting kittens that respect. So the earlier you can vote, just puts a bigger premium on just organization from from an early earlier sure. start. If you're in, if you're advising the Hillary Clinton camp, what would you advise them as far as uh, how to deal with Sanders? And again. She doesn't have a mathematical lock, but nearly a mathematical lock. How should she treat Sanders? You know, there's all this issue of does she, uh, ups, does she push them away by, by pivoting too early to the general election? Should she, be, should she be trying to let them have a stronger voice in, for example, the, the, uh, uh, the campaign platform? I mean, what, what would you advise? Take it away, Mark. Well, I would, I would, I would, I would start by prefacing this remark by saying I, I don't offer advice, so this is not advice. But if I was to sort of channel what I let me put it this way, if I were to channel what they are thinking, uh, I'm more comfortable answering it that way. I, I think what they're doing is they are trying to be respectful of Bernie Sanders and of his supporters, so as they do not alienate them. Um, I think I, I know for certainty that they are, are greatly frustrated by this, but I think they ultimately count on, at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders supporters coming around. And I think they will look and remember, some of you might um, recall 2008, and does, does the acronym PUMA mean anything to anybody out there? Any, any, yeah, yes, it was, and I think I can say this word on, on the radio and certainly in front of this audience, it was party unity, my which right. was what a lot of people said, uh, in particular, a lot of women who were uh, not happy that Barack Obama, there, 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 I can't tell you how many times I heard in 2008, yes, it's great that there's a prospect of electing the country's first black president, but what about the first woman president? And there were a lot of uh, women uh, voters in particular who were very angry and resentful of the campaign that Barack Obama ran, hard to remember now, but they were. And there was this feeling that like, you know, forget it. I'm, I'm not going to vote for Barack Obama. I'm going to stay home. Um, party unity, my and guess what? Most of these folks ended up coming around for Barack Obama, as I suspect most Bernie Sanders people are going to end up coming around because, you know, elections fundamentally always come down to a choice. And I have two examples that I use over and over because I think they're illustrative. In 2002, the day Gray Davis was elected governor, re-elected governor of California, he had a 45% approval rating. Why did he win? Because people liked him better than Bill Simon. They didn't like him. They liked him better than Bill Simon. In 1994, Ann Richards of Texas had, which to this, you know, in this day and age is impossible to believe, a 75% approval rating. People loved Ann Richards and they elected George W. Bush governor of Texas, why they liked him better than Ann Richards. So at the end of the day, it's not going to be Hillary versus Bernie or, you know, Hillary versus some kind. It's going to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And I would wager that for the vast majority of Democrats, they will take Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. Okay. 
Yeah, it's, um, we, uh, we have a running survey at the Hoover Institution. We poll about 5,000 people constantly, just keeping an eye on what they're thinking, how they're voting, how they're acting. And we've noticed that in terms of Bernie people who are going to cross over to Trump or Trump people who are going to cross over to Hillary, um, it's about a 10% trade-off on both sides. It's kind of a zero-sum game. It's not like a vast majority of, of feel the burn crowd is going to go for Trump all of a sudden. So uh, I guess my advice to the Clinton crowd would be, you know, when you learn how to drive, especially if you learned how to drive in a cold climate, you learn how to drive on a patch of ice. And you're always told what? Turn with the skid, not against it. And she's been a skid right now. She has lost some states in April and May. She may lose two tonight. Uh, she's not exactly finishing with a bang, so you have a choice. You can either turn the wheel like crazy to counteract or just ride out the skid. If she is convinced at the end of the day that she needs Bernie Sanders' people in a big, splashy show of support to show that she's one with them, there's a simple solution. Put Elizabeth Warren on the ballot with her. Make, her, make Elizabeth Warren your running mate. And that probably solves the problem right there. Mixed feelings on that one. Yeah, okay. definitely mixed feelings, yes. You all are awake. That's good to hear. Um, but otherwise, I think maybe there needs to be a conversation privately behind the scenes where it's explained, where the Hillary people explain to the Bernie people that, you know, you're not winning the war, but you've won a lot of battles here. Yeah. Just look at where our candidate is compared to a year ago. She's now talking about the minimum wage. She's talking about declaring war on Wall Street. She's picked up a bunch of your agenda here, so you're not getting everything you want, but, you know, she's conceded in some ways. Um, I'm going to actually push together two questions here because they're, they're uh, really connected, I think. If Trump doesn't release his tax returns, will this become a bigger issue? If Hillary Clinton doesn't release those transcripts of those speeches, will that be an issue? Or is this just one of those ping pong issues that kind of comes up during campaigns that really doesn't have much effect on I, I think the tax issue could be a problem to this extent, Donald Trump supporters, I, I think Donald Trump, as, 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 as shocking as it may have seemed, was onto something when he said he could probably murder someone on Fifth <laughs> Avenue and his supporters would, would not care. I, I, mean, I think he's right to a large extent. It's not going to um, hurt him among his supporters. Obviously, people who dislike Trump will dislike him. You know, but, but I do think there is a problem there. Uh, I don't think it's going to go away. I, I can tell you that as long as those taxes are, are not out there, um, reporters will persist in asking that question and will wonder what he is hiding. I, I, I think it's something that he's not going to just be able to say it's none of your business and make it go away like that. And I, I think, you know, it's a gift in a way to Hillary Clinton because, uh, you know, what's her counter? You know, he, he's going on about me releasing my speech as well. Why doesn't he release his tax return? <laughs> On the other hand, it puts you into this prolonged discussion about transparency and character. And this is what's interesting about the Clinton-Trump matchup at all times. It's, it's like almost back in the Cold War where you have mutually assured destruction. I fire a missile at you, you can fire a missile at me. So I attack you for your tax returns and you respond fire with me about my speech transcripts and all that goes. I'm not so sure if the tax issue is as big as we think. Keep in mind, Trump is making this assumption that I don't have to play by the same set of rules because the rules in this very angry age no longer apply. So I don't have to run a traditional campaign. The various questions the media ask me, I don't have to answer necessarily if I want to. And the American people, they want the economy working. They want something done about ISIS. From his perspective, they want the border secured. They don't give a damn about my taxes. So he just may not budge on this. Okay, let's have some fun. Uh it's time we can talk about vice presidential candidates or, or 
people's wish lists. We already talked about the surprisingly popular Earl, uh, Earl Elizabeth Warren uh, Earl Warren, that would be, Earl Warren. That would be a good thing. That would be something. Let, let's start on the Republican side again. Um, you know, John Kasich, the Ohio governor who uh, jumped out of the race about two days after he spoke here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, <laughs> he said today there's no way he didn't want to be Trump's uh, VP. Right. Who are some realistic or who, are, who would be some good candidates for him to uh, pair up with? Well, realistic, I, I think Newt Gingrich uh, would take it. See, they Not like Newt Gingrich. With this crowd, yeah, but we gotta win the crowd. I'm sorry. Look, I, I think Newt Gingrich uh, w would take it. Um, okay, hold on. I, I think Chris Christie would take it. Um, I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. It's a real calculation on someone's part. Right. Um, again, I think that uh, given his unpopularity, given the very steep odds, if you are a calculating politician, and, and some may see that as redundant, um, you, you look right. at it and, and you wonder if you run alongside Donald Trump, you know, do you come out of it looking better or worse? Assuming, you know, right. that, that he's going, you know, doesn't win. Um, unlike, you know, previous years, I'm not sure that positions you so well for 2020. So I think it's a calculation that, that anyone has to make. And if it seems like I'm kind of grasping, it's it's because, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump is such an un, unconventional candidate. Um, he could go any number of, of directions, but I would say the two that come to my mind immediately are, 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 are two who've indicated they're, they're interested in it, and that would be uh, Gingrich and... Um, um, Chris Christie. Chris, Chris, yeah, Christie. Yeah. Bill, what are your thoughts? Um, so Ben Carson, uh, there are about th two or three people who supposedly are leading the vice presidential search, and somewhere it was written that Carson is doing this. He floated a name of four or five the other day, and I can trump your Newt Gingrich with Sarah Palin. Um, there you go. Uh, but his five, and there's a lot of backpedaling in the Trump campaign immediately said Ben Carson was speaking for Ben Carson and not the campaign, but it included Kasich, it included, I think, Gingrich and Palin. Jan Brewer. And uh, I think Jan Brewer, the gov former governor of Arizona, and was Mary on there. Mary Fallon of Oklahoma. Mary Fallon of Oklahoma. This is the one thing that Trump has actually said that made sense, to me at least made sense in this campaign. He was asked about this not too long ago, and he said, I'm looking for somebody who can help me govern which when you think about it, that's the essence of the vice president. That person will have experience and know how to actually run a government, which obviously Trump doesn't. So that I think gets you out of, that actually speaks well toward Newt Gingrich actually, because he does he does know how to run the government uh, and gets you away from the Sarah Palin stuff, I will. But look at, uh, we're climbing inside the head of Donald Trump and the only person who knows what's going on in that world is Donald Trump. He has said, by the way, under the old guys of the old joke, how do you keep an idiot in suspense? Long silence. Um, he's, <laughs> he's not going to tell us until Cleveland. So it does, we're uh, in for a long wait. It does bring to mind uh, George Will's comment that uh, anyone who would uh, accept Donald Trump's uh, vice presidential uh, spot is unqualified for the position uh, because that person would think that Donald Trump is qualified to be president. Um, <laughs> Trump did not appreciate that comment. Uh, then briefly on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton, besides um, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, what? you hear Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia. Uh, I'm trying to think of others. Well, you hear Julian Castro. Uh, yeah, I heard uh, 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 um, uh, yeah, Javier Becerra from, from L.A. I mean, people, you know, that, that, that's the thing. This is... Uh, 
you know, the, the whole vice presidential thing. Every four years we play the speculative game. And I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no downside in throwing names out there. So they'll throw out all sorts of names. So they'll throw out, you know, people who appeal to the left. They'll throw out names of folks who appeal to um, um, Latino voters. I've heard, uh, apart from uh, Elizabeth Warren, some talk about maybe Clara McCaskill, uh, the senator from Missouri, if she wanted another woman on the ticket. Um, Ted Strickland from Ohio. Ted Strickland from Ohio, although... Uh, but then if he... Ted Strickland from Ohio is... is city no, no, senator. no, no. Strickland's running against... He's running against... He's running against oh, it's, Sherrod Brown, Sherrod Brown. The senator from Ohio. A, but he's a sitting senator, so if he were to become vice president, then Kasich would fill the seat, so... Right, uh, although Sherrod Brown has a lot of credibility, which is very interesting. Right. Sherrod Brown sort of made his uh, reputation opposing NAFTA and those sorts of trade deals. So, uh, again, if her calculation is to win over some of the Bernie folks, then, then, then a Sherrod Brown could be a good play. This, this pick is more interesting to me than the Trump pick in this regard. Um, you look because, at the Republican. The person might actually serve. Exactly. You look at the. Uh, <laughs> you look at the Republican situation for 2020, assuming Trump loses, and it lines up pretty much the way it does now. There's going to be Ted Cruz or, or another what I call Ivory Soap conservative, 99 and 44, 100 percent pure, who's going to run <laughs> in that lane. You're going to have somebody running on moderation and electability. If it's not Marco Rubio, it's John Case again, one of those people, or someone else. There's some nitwit to be named later who's a disgruntled talk radio host or. A retired surgeon or something like that who thinks they can be leader of the free world. You see that race already kind of lining up. But on the Democratic side, if you think about this for a minute, um, the Democrats don't really have anybody in waiting after Hillary right now. It's very wide open. Uh, they owe her in this regard. If she's elected president, they've got eight years to figure out the next generation of leaders, if you will. Barack Obama, by not putting a young man on the ticket with him in 2008, created this opening for someone not to compete against Hillary in this cycle. So we're talking about Kamala Harris, not to jump ahead in our segments here, but in terms of who the next Democrats to watch for might be, or Gavin Newsom, or a Cory Booker, or Julian Castro, people like that. So if she puts somebody very young on the ticket with her, that person in theory would be in the driver's seat for, for a race in 2024. Well, and interestingly, too, we should note, I mean, President Obama has been absolutely, uh, I mean, just the, the Democratic bench has been devastated under them. I think he, yeah. they lost something like 900 legislative seats around the country. I don't know the numbers of, of House and Senate seats they lost. 60, but 69 House seats, and uh, I live for this kind of Bill knows. 69 House seats, and uh, let's see, they've gone from 59 to 44 or 15 Senate so seats. So basically, it's like their whole, it's, it's almost like you knocked out the whole AAA of, of the Democratic Democratic Party uh, under Barack Obama. So they, they could really use four to eight years under, under Hillary Clinton to start rebuilding. Yeah. Um, I, now, let's move on to our next topic. And I alluded to this in my uh, opening comments, which is Facebook uh, recently faced claims by a former employee or employees. I think there might have been more than one that uh, Facebook had hidden or downplayed conservative posts in its trending topics uh, section and uh, therefore the section tilted to the left. Um, my question for the two of you, start with you, Bill. Does this matter? Does, does Facebook and, and for that matter, you know, expand to other big social media, do they affect or reflect politics in this country? Um, I don't know if Facebook really reflects. I mean, the question is, do people go to Facebook to get their news? Uh, years ago, Michael Jordan uh, was asked why he was not getting involved in a Senate race in North Carolina. This was 1990, I believe, and the race was between Jesse Helms and Harvey Gantt, who was the mayor of Charlotte and the first black man to run for a Senate seat in North Carolina. Michael Jordan assumedly was a Democrat, and so they said, why aren't you out there campaigning for the Democrat? And Michael Jordan said, because Republicans buy shoes as well. Uh, so when Facebook 
when Facebook is faced with a situation where somebody is accusing, I assume you all know, how many of you use Facebook, by the way? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. How many of you have been on Facebook in the time I've been talking to you? (laughs) 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 Uh, Facebook is about having people on its system, using its system, clicking through ads and driving up revenue. Republicans and Democrats use Facebook alike. Liberals and conservatives, they cannot afford to bleed, especially to something which is more, uh, something quicker and more newsier perhaps than a, than a Twitter or a Spotify or a, um, or a Snapchat. So this is trouble for Mark Zuckerberg. But I think the fight here is ultimately, this is about branding. Facebook is famously as a movie called it a social network. The last thing that you want to be rebranded as in this day of both political and media polarization is to be called a news operation. So that's why I think they're pushing like crazy against the idea that they are in some way trying to dictate news on their website. Yeah, and I do think, you know, I I don't think uh, that that elections uh, will be won or decided on Facebook, but I do think it's an interesting phenomenon I can tell you that you know they're a huge driver of traffic and I think it's a revelation to a lot of people that that there are, are editors at, at at Facebook and and the degree to which they push stories out and and, and get information out there disseminate I think that, that that's that's the greatest revelation I mean it's interesting though too I think you know we've seen sort of this balkanization of the media and I mean it, it's so contributed to to uh, you know the division we see on both sides and I mean it's, it's almost become a cliche now to talk about how people live in these silos where they can just get you know go, wake up in the morning Morning and 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 you know uh, n- never hear a discouraging word. Uh, skies are not cloudy all day. I mean, you just wake up in the morning and you can turn on MSNBC or Fox or tune into this left wing host or that right wing host and just have a steady diet of it. Um, I, I don't know to what extent whatever algorithms or whatever f- Facebook has is negated by the fact that Republicans are posting re- you know Republican posts that their Republican friends read. It, you know, it, it, it may be less in terms of of determining the outcome of elections than it is just pushing people even further or deeper, whichever metaphor you want to use, in, in, into their silos. If, if, you know, you go from Facebook or MSNBC to a steady diet of your Facebook feed, all showing stuff, reaffirming what you already believe, I, I think that may be the greater consequence. Right. And it, but in terms of, I think, driving news and just influencing the political dialogue, look what's happened. Look what Trump has done in this cycle in terms of using Twitter like a dumpster fire to sort of change the conversation every two to three days. Look at what Elizabeth Warren has done in the past couple of weeks, getting into a war of tweets against Trump. They understand that this is quick, this is moving, and the, especially cable news just love to run with this because it's fresh content. And Facebook is just slow compared to that and cannot keep up with, with them at that pace. Facebook's uh, leader and child billionaire Mark Zuckerberg uh, reportedly is meeting with a group of conservatives, uh, including uh, Glenn Beck. Uh, Glenn Beck wrote that Facebook is, quote, a tool not unlike radio, TV, or even the telephone, and must remain as unbiased as the telephone, unquote. Overstating it? It's Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck at last report was praying for Ted Cruz, so I think he's, 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 had, he's had a tough year. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, he was. He went on a fast for Ted Cruz. 
Uh, let's talk about state and local stuff. Now, there was a recent uh, debate by, among the Senate candidates down in Southern California, I believe. Um, did that change anything? Uh, did anyone who was maybe you know, low, below the radar get, get uh, needed oxygen to mix a bunch of metaphors? Uh, um, the short answer is uh, I don't believe so. I mean, I think we're looking, barring uh, some uh, strange development, probably at what's going to be a runoff between the two leading Democrats, Kamala Harris and uh, Loretta Sanchez. Um, that's just the nature, you know, we've adopted this top two, California's a democratic state. Um, you know, it, it's a funny thing because, you know, Bill can go on and, 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 and perhaps will talking about, you know, uh, the nature of being a U.S. Senator from California and how it's changed over the years. But I mean, it's a huge job. It's a big job, obviously. And it's a job where these people, and I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Bill in a second and stay there for a while. It's kind of remarkable how little attention it's gotten, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, not to let metaphors run amok, but I mean, you know, Donald Trump has been this huge force that has just blotted out the sun and just so uh, dominated the political uh, conversation this year to the detriment of, of, of really anyone in anything who's, who's not Donald Trump or running against Donald Trump or involved with Donald Trump. So there's been very, very little notice given. I know we're covering the story. We, not the Royal We, the LA Times, we've covered this. We've written extensively about these folks, but um, you know, there just isn't that much uh, interest or excitement uh, around the Senate race, which, you know, as Bill will tell you, has, has yeah. become... The nature of it's changed a lot. It is. So uh, if you took a snapshot of all the senators up on the podium when Bill Clinton first took the oath of office in 1993, you would see Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer in that photo. California is the only state with the same two senators today as in 1993. 150 senators have come to Washington in the time since Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein have been there. They're the oldest tandem in the United States Senate, a fact that Dianne Feinstein really loves to be reminded of, by the way. She'll be, she'll be 85 in, uh, in 2018 when she's up. Uh, Boxer was born in 1940. She's the same age as Nancy Pelosi. It's a funny contradiction for a state like California, which worships youth and spends more money on youth, be it exercise, diet, or, or nip-tuck, that we have the nation's oldest governor and the nation's oldest senator and the oldest tandem, and, and the list goes on. So. You're now looking at a first opening in the Senate in 25 years, and this is huge, this is generational, and yet the thing cannot get attention, in part because Trump has buried it, Bernie buries it. It's also, there's nobody terribly wealthy, terribly crazy in the race who just uh, dominates the news that way. They had a debate, but you know, it's these candidates otherwise are pretty much on milk cartons for the time being. <laughs> and it's, it's a shame in this regard because California senators too have, have huge sway, but what Mark is alluding to is Mark and I, Mark and I go back a ways. We both go back to the Washington of, dare I say, in the 1980s. I worked for Pete Wilson when he was the governor of California. Before that, he was a senator from California. He was a senator in a precarious position because he occupied what was called the jinx seat in California from 1964 to 1988. Whoever the poor SOB was who had that seat was out of a job in six years. We kicked senators out after one term. Wilson broke that streak in 1988, but since Boxer and Feinstein have come to the job, being a senator is like a crime. You get 25 years to life, you're set. <laughs> so it creates this fascinating dynamic. One reason why Dianne Feinstein could, could run at age 85 for another six years, because besides the fact she's probably in good health, the job is not what it used to be in terms of stress and having to get back to California and fight because we are a big blue marble now. So I would love to see her date book and see how many days of the year she's actually in California. Not to suggest she's slacking off on the job budget because her reelection is that easy. So it's different. But 
this job has huge ramifications in part because that senator, presumably a Democratic senator, because Mark's right, it probably will be a Democratic runoff. They will be part of what I suspect will be a new Democratic majority with a chance to do things for California. You know, it's Kamala Harris. You're going to hear a lot of buzz about her as a future big deal in the Democratic Party. So this thing has implications, but right now these people have a hard time getting arrested. Bill, I think this is for you. Is having Bill Clinton a plus or minus for Hillary? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's see. So yesterday she announced that he is going to be in charge of um, getting the economy rolling. So I, I think personally you put Bill Clinton a stimulus package in the same sentence and you got problems. But um, okay, that was, that was bad. I went too far. Um, I, I'm going to throw out a theory at you and I don't know if you'll like this or not, but let me just throw it at you. I wonder where Hillary Clinton would be today if after she had announced that she would not challenge George W. Bush in 2004 if she then announced that she and her husband were divorcing. Would she be a stronger candidate today if she were a divorced woman? Would she perhaps be, I hear a yes. She'd be what, perceived as more independent, a little free from him. She wouldn't have to be defending the greatest hits from the 1990s like NAFTA and the crime bill and those sorts of things. If, if Hillary had divorced Bill in 2004, would she be in a stronger position politically or be viewed stronger today? So I, I think the, so yeah, I think the answer to the question is I think he is a mixed bag for her in this cycle. He was a blessing for Barack Obama in 2012. He gave a lights out speech at that convention. He was a great surrogate candidate. He is turned 70 this year. He looks frail. It's not the same strong person you remember. And he has this funny habit and Mark and his colleagues wonder if this is purposeful or subconscious in some way of stepping on her message and causing problems for her in some way. So while in theory he's good at turning out the Democratic vote, I just think on balance that maybe he's a little bit more of a liability than an asset these days. Any thoughts, Mark? Uh, you know, I, I think that deployed properly, I, I think he could be a, a net plus because as Bill suggests, I think he's, he's very... Uh, uh, popular among certain segments of, of the Democratic Party, and I think he can help rally them. Um, I mean, I think fundamentally it's going to come down to a choice between the two of them. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, is a reminder of, of the 90s and, and all the baggage that is there. And that was one thing I kept hearing early on, which, which I don't hear so much anymore. And it goes back to my whole notion about this being a choice between Trump and Clinton, most likely with all due respect to the Sanders folks. Um, you know, I kept hearing it's like another Clinton and the baggage and the this and that. I, I, I don't hear that so much. So um, obviously Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton comes with an awful lot of, of baggage and an awful lot of history. Although, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, was always, I want to be careful how I phrase this because I don't want it to sound wrong, but you know, when, when she was perceived as somehow the wronged party or, or, or the victim, and, and let's be clear, it was not uh, she who, who uh, brought... Uh, how are we going to describe it? The whole Monica Lewinsky. You know, she was a victim in that. She was not shame a... Shame on the a, House a, of Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Well put. It was not she who brought shame on, on the House of Clinton. So, um, again, I think at the end of the day, uh, Bill Clinton can be a, a net positive, uh, especially if he could deliver a speech like he did 
um, in, uh, in, in, in Charlotte. I mean, that was just, just, just a, a terrific speech. And, and afterwards, people called him, what, the secretary of explaining things, just right. because, you know, he's a remarkable ability, far, by, far better than any politician that, that, I, that I've ever covered, I've ever seen, and, and certainly way, way more than, than, he, than his wife. And he may be crucial in this regard. Uh, if this election turns out to be close, it's going to be close because Donald Trump is giving her problems in Ohio and Pennsylvania and the manufacturing sector, the Rust Belt. She has struggled with Bernie Sanders in terms of explaining what she and her husband did in the 1990s with regard to trade, with regard to the manufacturing sector. Bill Clinton is the only Democrat who can really go in and explain what right. was done at that time and explain it. He can explain it better than she did. So while there's always a bit of nervousness inside a campaign of having your spouse fight your fights or a surrogate spouse your fights, she may very well need him at the end of the day to really deliver those states in terms of reminding them why they're Democrats in the first place. While you were out on the, covering the, the stump speeches and such, did you cover Bill Clinton this year, Dale, yet? Have you been at one of his... Uh... Not this year. I, I'm trying to think if I did any in 2015. I don't think I, I, I was at any Bill Clinton events uh, that I can remember. Uh, I mean, I've, I've covered him since 90 when he was back when he was Arkansas governor and still, I mean, just still the most remarkable politician I've, I, I've ever covered. Just, I mean, uh, in his prime, it was, it was, I would say it was like, you know, watching Sandy Koufax pitch or secretary <laughs> going down the back. I mean, he was just, just a, a force of just, just remarkable. And, and he has lost his step and he, and he does look frail, but still when he can rise to the occasion, he can, he's he still uh, is, is a superior politician and way better than his wife. Thank you to our panel, Bill Whalen and Mark Z. Baraback. Thanks to all of you here in San Francisco. Everyone listening online and watching TV. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 